and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. We have a special three-person edition today. I'm your host, Emma Graney, and with me we have Stuart Thompson. Good morning. Hello. We have Paula Simons. Good morning, Miss Emma. Yes, we only we we we're a one Tomo edition today. Yeah. And also, this is a podcast, so if you're listening to this at night, good night. What? Because <laughs> they could it is we're recording in the morning. Oh yeah, but it's uh, on demand media. So, G'day, yeah, because that right. covers G'day. all. Whatever you're doing, I hope so, you're enjoying it. So that's, yeah. what, that's what I'm going to say now. Every time, I'm going to say good day. <laughs> so, <laughs> so today we've got the cash and clarity edition. I'm going to be talking the third quarter financials that came out this week, and also how that might impact budget, which is looked to come out in March, right? Yeah. Coming well, uh, Finance Minister Joe Cici wouldn't commit to a date, but. He did say that it would be March, which I think you had some trouble getting him to admit. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. We'll get more into Joe Cece and his springtime slash March slash spring slash March comments, and also just talk about uh, transparency or rather a lack of it. There have been some concerns uh, in Alberta politics this week, firstly around the child intervention panel, and also around a series of reports that were released by the Privacy Commissioner on Thursday, and which made for a lot of great reading. And I know Paula and I both. Went over those with a fine tooth comb. I even used my highlighter. Uh, so first of all, though, let's go to financials because I don't know. Alberta just has this thing where it really likes to pay attention to how big the deficit is these days. <laughs> Crazy, I know. Um, so, Stuart, <laughs> the numbers were released by Finance Minister Joe Cece, who, by the way, is still wearing a cast. His leg is not fixed. Uh, his Achilles tendon, I believe, is still healing. I think he said he would be running by the summer. Yeah. He hopes. He's going to take it easy, though. He's optimistic, you know. I mean, that's the reason he's in that cast, because he was running in the summer, and then he injured himself and never saw a doctor. So let that be a lesson to you kids at home. (laughs) And is this a metaphor for anything about the budget in the third quarter fiscal update? broken, like his Achilles. And you need to have false optimism to imagine that it's going to get better, really, by summer. So, wow. I I think the the surface level, I like it. (laughs) The surface level take on the budget or on the fiscal update is... The deficit hasn't changed. We're still looking at a $10.8 billion deficit. <laughs> and uh, that is slightly up from the original budgeted version, which was $10.4 billion. Um, but it's the same as what they expected in the second quarter. If you look a little closer, though, this is kind of interesting because the revenue actually increased by $1.5 billion, more than they expected. Um, that was mainly due to oil and gas revenue. So the price of oil went up. And... We're hovering around $55 a barrel right now. Um, and they're in a pretty good spot because that would have to go below 52 for the rest of the year for them not to hit their goals on oil and gas. And But that extra revenue was sucked up by a few different things. And it, if you look at it that way, it's kind of a missed opportunity to maybe... Like I know that Joe Cece would have loved to go in there yesterday and say, deficit smaller everything's looking great. We've got GDP growth coming this year. But they couldn't say that because they made this deal with coal companies last year um, where they want to phase out the coal plants by 2030. They have to give a lot of money to... uh, There's three um, power companies that have coal plants that were going to go past that deadline. So they're getting $97 million a year until 2030. Finance wanted to pay $97 million a year over 14 years and budget it that way. And 
the AG, uh, Merwin Sahar, said... That's the Auditor General, the, for yeah, those the Auditor who, General. Who, don't, who don't speak Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Auditor General said, no, what I want you to do is book that all this year, $1.1 billion. Oh, and <laughs> you can kind of imagine how the thinking went on this in finance. I think they probably Obama? didn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they didn't want the AG coming out and saying they're they're playing funny games with the accounting on yeah. this um so they booked 1.1 billion dollars that actually made them breach the uh i think it's called the fiscal and transparency act which means they can't have more than one percent increase on operating expenses and so they breached that apparently there's no consequences for that they just have to tell us um that they did that and they also so that that's a lot of money 1.1 billion that sucked up a lot of that yeah, but th- but that is okay in fairness that they're not paying that out all at once i mean no and this is an accounting thing it's not yeah. money that's going in a bank somewhere can i just say i took accounting in university i had to because one of my degrees is a business degree and i had to take accounting 101 and i don't know how i passed that subject i still mm. don't know I think they actually mixed up my results with my brother's results because we were yeah. doing the same <laughs> subject and had the same last name that's the only way i can think so I think I, if you do poorly enough in accounting, they streamline you straight into journalism. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think I just felt sorry for me. That Emma, she's turned up to every single lecture, <laughs> every single tutorial. How is she still failing? <laughs> well, a lot of it is this. Like They tried to explain to us a, a, an economic thing called the time value of money. Because if you do the math, 97 times 14 years, it's not 1.1 billion. It's like 1.37 or something billion. And there was a near journalist revolt because they were saying it's, <laughs> it's less because the time value of money means that money, you know, it, it's worth more if you book it. It's worth less if you book it now. And so it, it was... And journalists were like, no, yeah. this doesn't make sense. There was a lot of heads exploding. That was during the actual announcement of this thing. And so <laughs> now they've booked it. Uh, that's $1.1 billion, and I'm that- so glad I'm listening to this podcast in real time because now I don't have to read any of these stories. Stuart is explaining it to me in small words I could understand. Uh, so that that's part of it. The other part of it is that a lot of ministries overspend. And that particularly the big one is health, which I think was $284 million over budget. And Ouch. That was... Um, due to growth in the number of physicians, and they said also due to drug prices. Uh, that's a constant battle for them, though. I mean, that's and that's not just here in Alberta. That's always a huge pressing issue yeah. across Canada. And right? CC actually said, you know, this is an odd one because you're in the middle of a downturn. You have people who require services at that point. So, you know, like um, human services saw increased um, in their budget too just because they are more apt to be offering services during a downturn. But what also happened in Alberta is that migration has gone down a little bit recently, but not a lot, not in not the usual amount for a downturn. So there's still people coming into the cities. And up until very recently, there was people coming into the province and they're requiring services. They're requiring doctors, they're requiring schools and teachers and all that kind of stuff. So all those ministries are coping with things that don't necessarily happen during a downturn. Uh, while also dealing with the fiscal reality of a downturn. So they had this really, I, I can only imagine how, looking at those numbers, how Joe Cece felt, because it's not bad news. He wasn't sad to come in there and do that, but there was a better story that could have happened if it wasn't for that accounting and if it wasn't for the budgets being bursted a little bit. So Joe Cece didn't have a single tear running down his cheek no as tears. he told you all. Yeah, and actually, I mean, you were there. It was very... Um, 
strangely, he kind of hobbled through the media offices yeah. afterwards too and Scared said hello. Scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me. I opened my door to go fill up my water bottle and Joe Cece's standing there with his press secretary and I was like, what the... F-? He scared the absolute life out of me. He's just standing yeah. there in his crutches. I yeah. assumed that there was a mistake in my story and... <laughs> Generally, <laughs> See, I mean, what you need to understand, boys and girls, is that when we're in the press gallery in the basement of the legislature, is that your average cabinet minister doesn't usually come by no. because no. we're sort of like it's like upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey. We're down in the basement next to the cafeteria, <laughs> and and yeah. uh, and the, and, the, and the upstairs we're likely to be swearing and, and <laughs> bitching about the, the, up, the upstairs folk. I mean, the offices are really nice. They got big solid oak doors, lovely windows, but you know, it's not. It's it's not like being the upstairs people. So why yes. was he there? So why was he there? I well, wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't totally clear on that because Joe Cece is very soft spoken. So when he said hello, I thought it was some nervous press secretary coming by, <laughs> and I had my back to the door. So I was like, "Oh, uh, who is this?" Like usually they're pitching you stories or they're complaining about something, and I was trying to write this very complicated fiscal story. It's the so, finance minister. Yeah, and it was the finance minister. So. Nice to have a tour by the finance minister. Always. Yeah. Well, I so I very awkwardly said hello after that because I was embarrassed. And then he said he was taking a stroll through memory lane, which I didn't totally understand because I don't think that he was a reporter or even before now he wasn't a provincial politician. No, he was a member of Calgary City Council He's yeah. for a, a long time. If yeah. anything, he's not strolling. Yet. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it was nice, and it did strike me that that wouldn't have happened if it was a really grisly fiscal update. Right. Yeah, he would have been hiding in his office. But <laughs> again, it might not have happened if it was a super, super good fiscal update either. I mean, yeah. he probably had to come and do a little bit of, you know, salesmanship. Which yeah. didn't work. Everyone just door asked him about his leg. Yeah. And actually, our <laughs> colleague, the, the problem was, too, is that our colleague, Kim Ternacity, had burned her hand on some soup. So that was sort of the focus of the discussion, not <laughs> the fiscal Kim's, update. And this is what we do when you're not looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that looked nasty, that burn. Yeah, so I think that you're right. There, there was some salesmanship going on here. One of them was that they had to do like a, a lending increase, which he was trying to get ahead of at the, the press conference, and that was something like 14 billion came right. through. They and, passed the um, they passed the order in council for that just as you guys were all sitting in the press conference. Yeah, the, and he yeah. said well, it was already booked in the budget and everything, which was correct. And there was a couple of things too, like the coal thing. That's a very complicated thing, which um, it. It might have looked worse than it really was. So I, f- I think they were trying to get ahead of these things that could have been misconstrued. Mm. So or, how's his- or spun, 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 spun <laughs> by the Wild Rose and Progressive Conservative Opposition Parties, plural now, singular perhaps later. Like because complicated yeah. situation. Well, it, it, it's interesting, right? Because you saw this interesting change in tactics by Jason Kenney on on social media. Up until now, everybody has been making Saskatchewan, Emma's former province, the poster child for fiscal probity. Why mm. can't Alberta be more like Saskatchewan? <laughs> and now that Saskatchewan uh, is also running deficits. Yeah, Saskatchewan uh, wants um, provincial employees to take unpaid days off. Yeah, so Saskatchewan, I mean, which is less vulnerable to resource uh, ups and downs in Alberta, but still very exposed, uh, as is Newfoundland. I mean, uh, Saskatchewan is also running deficits. And so suddenly, Brad Wall is no longer uh, Jason Kenney's uh, example of how to be the perfect premier. Instead, in an interesting move, Jason Kenney is now out saying, why can't Alberta be more like British Columbia, uh, which is not not a 
a typical tactic. No. Um, so he's like, well, look, out, British Columbia doesn't have a deficit. British Columbia is paying down its debt, at, at which point all the economics uh, people who think about economics on Twitter said to him, yeah, see, so here are some reasons why British Columbia doesn't have a deficit. They have a sales tax and a carbon tax and real income taxes. And, you know, if if you too in Alberta would like to pay some taxes, you too could have less of a deficit. Yeah, that but, is true. And it, it is it is really funny. to We always have one good neighbor, don't we? Like someone you can... <laughs> because it was almost as soon as Saskatchewan went down, BC was like, oh, look, we got some good budget numbers but is, here. But isn't this what your mother did too? Why can't, yeah. you, be, why, why can't you be more like Marnie across the street? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, but I was an angel child. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think something worth mentioning about the bc thing is they actually do genuinely spend less per person than alberta and a lot of that is the, due to the fact that in alberta if you're trying to attract staff you need to pay them commensurate with the private not necessarily what the private sector is paying but it needs to kind of go up with that so in alberta where wages are higher in general the public sector needs to come close to that so it's going to be higher than say nova scotia um but I do wonder if that is always going to be the case because we are looking at less growth in the province in general. We're looking at maybe oil not to be quite at the dizzying peaks that it was. So Alberta may find itself in a spot where we're paying very high public sector wages when maybe that's not necessary or competitive. So it was interesting. The Wild Rose plan, they they came up after after the fiscal update and said, we need to freeze public sector wages. And that is something that's pretty common to hear from the right of center party. Um, well, and I'm not sure that that's such. A, I mean, you know, I don't think of myself as a right of center person. This seems to me like a pretty good year to freeze public yeah. sector wages. I mean, yeah. I mean, but I had this conversation once with the ATA because uh, they had signed. This is back when Ed Stelmack and Ron Leipert. Ron Leipert was the education minister. That is a time ago, uh, and the ATA had won a very sweet contract uh, with lots of escalators that went up, and then. You know, the economy kind of flatlined for a time there. And I said to the ATA person I was speaking to, well, like if the econ- if wages drop in the province, do your wages go down? And I wasn't even trying to be obnoxious. It just seemed Fair to question. me it just yeah. seemed to me that if you know, if your if your wages were escalated based on the rate of inflation and the rate of inflation went down and private sector wages dropped the ATA man's head nearly exploded as he explained to me, no, that's not how a teacher's contract works. Um, <laughs> it only goes up and there is no down. And this is the problem with all of our public sector wage models. If we index them to the cost of living or we index them to some, you know, something that goes up to keep pace with private sector wages, private sector wages drop, the public sector wages never drop in, par- in parallel. Mm-hmm. I actually found... Uh, it was Glenn Van Dyken, who's the jobs and labor uh, critic or shadow minister, as they like to be oh, called. Oh, bollocks. Which <laughs> Emma doesn't allow. Um, <laughs> oh, oh you, you know, uh, Dave Rodney asked yesterday if he could be called the education advocate instead of oh, the education God. critic. I said, no. no. Not in our paper. <laughs> um, but it, actually, it was, it was interesting because they were saying freeze all the wages um, and then cut by attrition in the bureaucracy, which those, I mean, compared to what we've seen in Alberta, those are not extreme, but they're big steps. And he said, you know, you do that, you find $500 million with the wage freeze, you find a couple hundred million by um, the attrition cuts, and, you know, you got about $800 million. And then someone pointed out that's still less than one-tenth of the deficit. 
not debt. That's the deficit for the year. And he said, oh, but, you know, these things get momentum. And then before you know it, you found 2% there and 3% there, and you've got $2 billion. <laughs> You overturn the couch cushions, and next thing you know, there's no deficit. You just found $10.8 billion stuck underneath the couch. Exactly. And that's that's what it sounded like. And uh, it was one of those things where you thought, this is the this is the, the right-wing party, and the biggest cuts that they will advocate for will, I mean, even if you count the find a few billion here, find a few billion there, cuts. Two billion is uh, a fifth of the deficit, less than a fifth. So that's not very much money. And that just shows you what kind of a hole you get put in when oil goes down like that. Well, you know, and it's not just oil. I mean, I've said before that, you know, we have still never come to terms with the fact that once upon a time, and not that long ago, natural gas was actually more important to the provincial exchequer than oil was. And we lost that natural gas revenue stream effectively um, during the Stelmac government. Uh, we've never made up for that loss. Now we've got the oil loss on top of that. I mean, we have been coasting uh, uh, you know, for all of these years on the expectation that uh, natural gas and oil revenues would pay for the things that we didn't want to pay taxes for. And if you cut those things out of the budget and you still don't have taxes, then this is where you are yeah. in a yeah. hole, a, a deep hole in getting deeper. And that that's a problem because, I mean, I don't think anybody who lived through the Klein cuts in Edmonton uh, wants to go back to the days when we just cut and slashed and burned our way out of debt. On the other hand, I mean, even uh, the most progressive voter has got to be looking at these numbers and thinking, you know, at a certain point, I mean, spiraling into a black hole of debt is not an answer either. I, I can quickly end this on a happy note, which is that, you know, for all the deficits and debt and everything, they are projecting 2.4% GDP growth, and they are projecting... Yeah, that's the Conference Board of Canada. Uh, actually, the government is 2.4, the Conference Board is 2.8. Wow, and okay. So that is that would be nice. Uh, and I also, feel like I needed a little potty popper here. For <laughs> and that, and, and that, that, I think the Conference Board is saying that we'll have the, the fastest rate of growth of any province. Of course, that's one of those things that if your growth has been down, <laughs> then, you know, if, if you, yeah. cha- if you yeah. change the denominator, then the numerator, you know... Yeah, it's yeah, like well, it's like when you're yeah. when you have a cold and then feeling normal feels awesome. That's yeah. that's what it's going to be like in Alberta at the end of 2017. Yeah, I, I, really, my, my, I really like that. <laughs> yeah, Keith, Keith gave me his cold last week. I'm almost better now. I want to move to transparency. Now, this has come up a couple of times this week. First of all, it came up on Wednesday at the most recent child intervention panel hearing. One of the big concerns that keeps coming up is that the experts who are, who are talking to the panel answering questions. So we're talking, you know, social workers, not so much frontline workers as managers, etc. They're being asked questions by the panel members. The problem is they're not really giving answers. Well, they're giving answers in terms of describing how the system works now, but what they're not doing is weighing in on how it should look or giving their opinion on what could work better. And that's the whole reason these panel members say that they are there. It's to give their opinion. Now, we talked to the Children's Services Minister, Danielle Larray, about this. And she said, well, you know, the direction they were given was explain the system how it is now, not weigh in on what your opinion is to fix it. But that causes a real problem because you have people who are trying to formulate recommendations through the knowledge of the people who know possibly where these you know fixes could come and all they're hearing from the experts all the panel members are hearing from these experts is well that's your decision and that's the panel's you know call to make and 
they brought this up again and again. If that doesn't change, I can see that being a huge problem. I was going to say they're not there to offer their opinions. They're there to provide expertise. But in fact, they are. They have been talking to some very senior people who I think are arguably supposed to have an opinion about things and not just regurgitate facts. But I think I think the deep problem is that after all of those years of conservative government, public servants are legitimately scared. I mean, they grew up in a in a culture in which their opinions were not valued and that if offering their opinion was often not a very good career strategy. So it is a little <laughs> bit rich in some ways for Rick McIver sitting in there um, as the conservative representative on the panel to complain, you know, why don't civil servants feel free to speak, you know, openly and candidly? Well, um, you know, you could, you could ask um, the people who served under, you know, Alison Redford, for example, why they don't feel free to speak candidly to power about what it's doing wrong. In his defense, he did say that secrecy was a problem under his government too, and he should take the rap for that. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> in, 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 in fairness, but you, so, so there is a problem if you have civil servants on balance tend to be cautious and not want to rock the boat. Uh, but, you know, in, in this in this particular Alberta political culture, um, there was a pretty high price to pay for being the tall poppy who was going to say, you know, I have a better idea about how this could work. On the other hand, um, Jason Nixon and Rick McIver and, and Greg Clark and everybody are all correct when they say that this panel is going to be useless if people just come in and, you know, read off their notes and are afraid to speak honestly about what the problems are and how we could fix them. And it's not even just those guys saying that. Heather Sweet, who is an NDP MLA and a former social worker herself, and, on, and, worker, on, the committee, and yeah. on the panel, she she even said, look, yeah, it's a problem. This is this culture of protecting your own ass, okay, I'm paraphrasing, she did not say that, but that's kind of what I took from it, has been alive and well as long as human services has been a ministry. That's just how it works because you protect your own. You kind of close ranks a little bit um, because you don't... Otherwise, it's almost like an attack against your whole profession and your colleagues. And that's... They're worried about that happening. So she did agree. Like There has to be kind of culture shift for people to want to give their opinions. And Danielle Larave said she's working on... Her ministry's working on some kind of mechanism where people can give their for real opinions uh, and not be afraid of consequences. I assume that's going to be some kind of online survey or some such thing that the panel will um, will, will use to formulate recommendations. The irony is that while this panel is having its big important panel discussions over at the courthouse this week, we had yeah. the, we had the uh, uh, fatality inquiry into the death of Kalija Potts, who was a three-year-old First Nations boy who was killed by his foster mother, Lily Choi, uh, bashed his head against a toilet uh, until his skull fractured. That was 10 years ago. We're finally getting to the fatality inquiry, which was delayed by uh, by the, the criminal proceedings and then delayed by the shortage of provincial court judges. So finally, here we are. And what, you know, what Emma tells us that we heard on the first day was that, uh, you know, not only was Lily Choi we already knew this, not licensed to have that many foster kids. She wasn't licensed to have any children under school age, and she wasn't licensed to have any children with special needs. Nonetheless, she had a three-year-old with special needs placed in her home, which was then overcrowded with other foster children. And uh, when asked why this happened, the person who placed the little boy in the home said she didn't have access to the information, didn't have access to the file that said that Lily Choi wasn't licensed to have those kids. Uh, and so, you know, what the actual heck... Uh, I mean, how, how is this possible that you, you have a system where you, you, you know, 
Emma reported that there was like a, a an exclamation point that said... Yeah, there was a star and an exclamation point. And, and this was noted multiple times throughout her licensing report, which I should say, so the licensing report doesn't actually... It, it says you are approved for X number of children um, at level whatever. So they can make notations, which this did, the, the licensing officer did it numerous times for the report, put an asterisk and no, basically, you know, no kids under age five, exclamation mark. And yet, because she was approved, it was just kind of, oh, well, we'll just put it with her then. But how she ended up with those extra kids and how she ended up then, I must say too, Collager Potts, when he was first placed with her, was considered a level one kid. Um, but then he... Yeah, yeah, it quickly emerged that he was... He was not a level one kid. Yeah, yeah that, but he, that he had more complicated needs. And so, you know, I mean, I, I remember from the criminal trial, you know, that she, she asked for more help. She said she was yeah. she said she said was sort of going under, and they were so short of foster parents at that time. But, you know, the, the point is not to relitigate this, but to say that if social workers won't speak up at the panel and say these are the kinds of systemic problems that we have, not enough foster homes, information that isn't going from one worker to the next. Uh, I mean, this is not rocket science. This is not systemic racism. This is just bad bureaucratic practice. Speaking of which, reports from the Privacy Commissioner came out yesterday. We had two of them. Scathing. Um, they scathing. were scathing. I'm, I'm, miss, I'm, I'm, I'm overusing the word scathing, but in this case it's it was... It's an apt word. I think it's a good word for this. So, Paula, you read them. I read them as well. They were not particularly flattering of the Alberta Justice or Executive Council or Public Affairs Bureau. Yeah, no, I mean, so these were two separate reports, one into chronic backlogs in Alberta Justice, which all of us who have filed FOIP requests with Alberta Justice know. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, as, as a I matter... Like Keith's going to be just looking at this going, yelp, tell me about it. <laughs> I mean, it's a matter of course that, I mean, they have 30 days to respond. I mean... So you're lucky if at the end of 30 days they send you a note that says, sorry, too busy to respond. Uh, you know, so it, takes, it takes months and sometimes years to get a, a FOIP request through. So the, the reporting to the Justice Department, I mean, it flagged some, some problem issues. It turns out that there are three individuals in the province who are responsible for more than 30% of all the FOIP requests to justice. That's wacky, one of, one of them is an inmate. Um, one of one of them is an MLA, and one of them is a regular person, and it's not me. Uh, <laughs> so you, you know, would technically be classified a member of the media, I, so, I think. Paula. So no members of the media made the list of the bad three uh, or the busy three. Uh, so you know, the report says one, they need more staff to to deal with this. But also, the report flagged a very troubling, you know, culture within justice, where you know, within government, of disdain uh, for the FOIP Act of disrespect for the whole process of freedom of information of senior managers who were being obstructionist when FOIP officers tried to get information uh, in the Public Affairs Bureau. And, and this made my hair stand on end. Every single FOIP request was reviewed first by a senior bureaucrat and then by the senior financial officer before it was even given to a FOIP officer to action. I actually used to work in um, communications, and part of my job was doing FOIP, as in replying to FOIP requests. Had they gone through a bureaucrat in the place where I worked, there's no way that that would have happened. Jill Clayton, when I spoke with her yesterday, the Privacy Commission, she said, you know, I'm hearing these things, you know, I hear this anecdote all the time that managers are kind of like, oh, don't put that in writing because they can FOIP it. 
I just, that made me just lose my mind because as a FOIP officer myself, I specifically did workshops with people saying, you have to know that everything you write down is foipable, but you can't just not write something down because you don't want it to be foipable. Like that's against the legislation, dudes. This is, and it's, I think people should realize that when you're putting in a FOIP request as a journalist, you have this layer which is that you are talking to a FOIP officer who is generally, I mean, probably like 80% of the time, they're really like keen. They're happy to help you. They are on the side of transparency. But then they have to go and go to this bureaucracy, whoever you're FOIPing, whoever it is, if it's the police or the Justice Department or something, and then get them to get their wheels moving. And they have a limited amount of tools they can use to get that moving. And most of the time, you're just talking to them and saying, well, doing all I can, like we're trying to get things moving and they can't really tell you what's going on. So it is easy to get that impression that there's a real disdain on the other side of that FOIP coordinator for what you're trying to do. And this is, it goes back to the culture in uh, human services too, which is a culture of closing ranks. And uh, that is really hard to break. That's something that has to come from the top and it has to trickle down and it has to sort of permeate the whole organization. And it's the same with FOIP where there is, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily everywhere, but in the bureaucracy, there is kind of this sense that we're trying to get work done. This is a distraction. People don't need to know what we're doing because don't worry, we're doing the right thing. And the idea that we as journalists would be questioning that is kind of insulting to them. And that, I mean, that's a tough thing to get through, right? And as a manager, I think you'll notice this too in political parties and leaders where if there's sort of this like culture of people who criticize us are the enemy, that will permeate through the whole party. And it's just something that I think needs to come from the top. It's something that I think people need to understand from the beginning that FOIP is part of good governance and good governance as a whole benefits everyone. What was also really interesting here, and it's it's interesting to read back in light of the moves now to bring the Wild Rose and the Conservatives together, is that it's very, very clear in the time before Rachel Notley becomes Premier, that when you read, when you read between the lines, there was a lot of of senior bureaucracy who were very concerned about the Wild Rose and not very happy to be responding to Wild Rose FOIP requests. There's a great line in one of the reports that says one of the reasons that FOIP requests went up is that up until uh, the election where you know where Daniel Smith uh, went head to head with Alison Redford and there was suddenly a robust opposition, there were hardly any opposition FOIP requests. And once the Wild Rose had a bunch of opposition MLAs, the volume of FOIP requests went way up. And they I mean, they had been so used to having a one-party system without an effective opposition to hold them to account. And all of a sudden, <laughs> here's the Wild Rose filing FOIP after FOIP after FOIP. And, and at one point, you know, in one of the reports, it says that, you know, the, 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 the Justice Department came and said, maybe we don't have to respond to the Wild Rose FOIP request because they're not filing responsible requests. They're just on fishing trips. And, and <laughs> You hear that as yeah. journalists, too. So <laughs> it, it, it's really interesting because the animus between the conservative bureaucracy and the wild rose that is apparent when you go read through these reports. Um, it reminds us that in the happy world of 2017, where these parties are going to try to come together, <laughs> is that there's a lot of bad blood still. Yeah, I think you, also- you made a good point, actually, uh, Stuart. One of the recommendations that the Privacy Commissioner made was 
that the change has to come from the top. It has yeah. to trickle down from the top and it has to be a culture change. And I also should throw in here as well, uh, I spoke with Sarah Hoffman yesterday, the Deputy Premier, and they are actually hiring new staff to fill the ginormous gaping holes in foot placements. So yeah. Justice, I think, has eight more people now and um, Executive Council has two that have been seconded from other areas in the government. All right, I want to move to our final segment of the day, our usual segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery. Stuart, what do you have for us this week? Uh, well, I have something a little off the beaten path. This is an essay by, I'm just going to read it here, Abigail Deutsch, who wrote it for the New York Times magazine, which if you ever get a chance, check out that section of the New York Times website every week. It comes in their weekend paper, and there's some extraordinary writing in there. But this is a pretty short essay on napping on the subway. And <laughs> as You a, love napping. I love napping. As a napping enthusiast, I'm also a... <laughs> A transit nap enthusiast too. Um, you know those little naps where you kind of go in and out of napping. No, and, no, you don't nap. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I can Aren't sleep. You worried that you'll miss your spot? The, well, the, it's kind of about that. Like it's about how you have to kind of keep awake. You have to kind of still be there, and also how you have to trust everyone around you. Uh, where on a New York subway, that is not a small thing to do. Uh, it's a really extraordinary piece of writing. I'm going to read that because I don't nap. I don't understand napping, and I never have. So that will give me an insight into a life I have no part in. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend a piece from uh, BBC News magazine. It is awesome. It's called Jack Barsky, the KGB spy who lived the American dream. And it is just about this dude who basically just fitted into the US and no one knew he was a spy. And it is super interesting. I absolutely loved it. Paula. All right. I have a, a lovely bit of Brit Snark from the Financial Times uh, who did the most amazing takedown of uh, an American named Ted Malik, who's being whose name is sort of being brooded about as the next American ambassador to the EU. He's an EU basher. And uh, the Financial Times writer Henry Mance went through Ted Malik's CV and just said, nope, that's a lie. That's not true. That's a very large exaggeration. That, no, having your, paying to be called a laird is not the same thing as being a laird. And it's the <laughs> most, it's the most British takedown of an Arrivist American ever because Malik's resume is all full of things like, you know, I, I worked for this Oxford college. It's like, it's all the things that are sort yeah. of like the, the, the shibboleths of British aristocracy. And Henry Mass is like, nope, 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 nope. Margaret Thatcher never said that about you. No, the Queen did not do that. And <laughs> and queen. so, th no. oh, the queen, the queen isn't here too. So so Malik uh, fought back and and uh, responded, and then the Financial Times appended this really long thing at the bottom of the piece. You know, hey, Mr. Malik says this. This is still wrong. This is still wrong. Adorable. That is not a thing that happened. Uh, it is so funny. It's like Monty Python meets. Uh, meets politics it's love it guys thank you so much for joining me Stuart Paula and David Bloom for filming some of this he's sitting in the corner like yep can you finish now uh, <laughs> you'll find the video that lucky David got to film at EventonJournal.com, along with all uh, the other episodes of the Press Gallery podcast you can also subscribe to SoundCloud iTunes and TuneIn Radio and we hope that you will join us again this time next week at the Press Gallery 